Indy Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indy Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. In partnership with Indy Student Media, Indy Votes would like to introduce our new podcast, Pizza, Pod, and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza, Pod, and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to educate students about the voting process, different political issues from a nonpartisan lens, and mobilize students to turn out to vote this November. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you all for joining us for uh, the first episode of Pizza, Pod, and Politics. This is a new endeavor for us, so uh, thank you for hanging with us. Uh, my name is Michael Morota, and I'm one of your hosts today, and I am here with... Hi, guys. Uh, I'm Matt Kotner. I am a junior at Notre Dame, and I am uh, Votes' engagement chair. Um, I'm Adair Molinsky. I'm also a junior at Notre Dame, and I'm the social media chair for Votes. We got a great team with us here today, and we're going to kick off the conversation uh, about registering to vote and requesting your absentee ballot. Uh, so, Matt, you want to take it away? Yeah, for sure, guys. So, this is just a lot about the generics of registering and voting absentee, and something that we've really found on campus so far, which is awesome, is that a lot of people that we ask already are registered and already have their absentee ballots. Um, but this is more for people that, that aren't sure, aren't sure, uh, and they want to get going. So just a little bit, uh, ND Votes has created a general election guide. Um, you can find it on the Centers for Social Concerns website under ND Votes. Um, but it's for everyone, not just Notre Dame students. Um, it's for everyone who's wanting to know how they can get registered or how they can vote uh, by mail in their state. So if you, if you go to the website, you can just click on your state. We have an interactive map. Um, and from there, what we can do is uh, go through our four steps of voting as well as uh, find deadlines and uh, see what offices are up for election. So our, our four steps, they're, they're very simple. Uh, one, just register to vote. So again, if we go to that website, we can see our voting deadlines and uh, register to vote. And there are three different ways we can do that. We try to make it as easy for you guys as possible. You can either go to TurboVote, Vote.org, or your Secretary of State's website. Um, so we have three op options for you there, and you can click on any one of them to get started. Um, generally, students use TurboVote to get registered here, since Notre Dame has a, a partnership with TurboVote. Um, so you show up there, you're going to have to give up, uh, give some information, so name, address, things like that. Sometimes driver's license, it just depends on the state. Um, make sure that our campus, our mailing address is the campus mailing address. Uh, that way, they're sending your ballot and different things like that, or your ballot request form, if you do that. They're sending that through the mail. Um, also, on the registration topic, if you're not sure you're registered, one, there's no harm in registering twice. That's something that's totally okay. Also, Vote.org has a tool that can check your registration status. So you just go to Vote.org, and one of their uh, options in their menu is to just enter your name and address, and they'll tell you whether or not you're registered. Um, so that, those are a couple different ways that we offer that you can get registered to vote. And then next up, it would be getting your absentee ballot. Now, this, is, this takes a couple of steps. Um, what we have to do is we have to request our absentee ballot, send that request in. Uh, sometimes it's through uh, the mail. Other times you'll be able to do online. Again, uh, we run 50 different elections, really, in the United States. It's state by state. It's, that's something important to remember that the, uh, it's going to vary by what state that we use. Also, uh, so now you, you put in for this absentee ballot. Uh, you can click. Every college student can click or can order 
an absentee ballot because we have an excuse. We are going to be at college on the time of the election. Um, so we can go to our Secretary of State's website, um, which again is provided on our voting guide, and take it from there, follow the steps, either print it out and send it, or uh, do it online. Again, depends by state. Make sure you check what resources your state has to offer. All right. So, Matt, why don't you tell everybody uh, how we're doing on this timeline? Is it still, can we still register? Uh, is it safe to already request our absentee? How's that going? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And something I want to stress about the timeline is that uh, our goal is to do this ASAP. I mean, so deadlines to register in certain states have unfortunately already passed. Um, and if you're registered in that state, but you haven't requested an absentee ballot, you still have time to do so. So that's just the registration deadline. Um, but the absentee ballot deadline comes up in, in still a couple of weeks. But again, we encourage you to, uh, if you're not registered, not from one of those states, to register and then request your absentee ballot. Or if you still haven't requested your absentee ballot, um, go ahead and do that. And do that as soon as we can, because we want to make sure that we can send that absentee ballot in and it get there in time for the election. Because again, varies by state. But some states, uh, Indiana, I'm from Indiana, for example, uh, my ballot has to be at the, the county office by election day at noon. Um, some states allow you to postmark, which means you can just send it in on election day and then they'll count later. But it depends state by state. So again, we encourage you to, to jump on this as quick as you can. Um, and again, I think we have a good comprehensive voter guide that can help you with, with any issues. Yeah, that, that's, an essential, that's an essential point, getting it in on time and uh, paying attention to your state-specific guidelines as far as making sure uh, you get your absentee ballot in on time and make sure that it is uh, correct so that it can be counted. Uh, so, Matt, there's a, there's a lot being said right now uh, in, in politics by the media about uh, the safety of voting by mail. Uh, do you want to address that? Yeah, just, just briefly, because um, the, a lot of the things that are going around uh, we just want to let you guys know that voting by mail is safe. Voting by mail is safe. It's secure. There is very, very, very little evidence of voter fraud in, in the United States. Uh, we want to just make sure you guys know, again, because you're going to be voting if you're a Notre Dame student or any college student, you're probably going to have to vote by mail. Or your parents who might not have voted by mail before, your parents, your grandparents, they might not be familiar with it because they're used to going to the polls, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they, they have to do this other option. So that's something to not be afraid of. That's something that's totally okay. Um, again, I think our voter guide is a great resource for that, but we just want to make sure you know that voting by mail is safe. Uh, something to back that up, if you guys uh, are curious, there are five states before the pandemic, uh, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, and Washington, that conducted their elections using vote by mail all together, the entire election. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind, that before the pandemic, we were using this, it was totally fine, it's been totally safe. Um, and we just we want to reassure people that this, this is a totally okay thing to do and that uh, th that you should do it. Exercise your right to vote, and this is a good way to do it. Exactly. And before we finish off this, uh, this topic here, um, there are some states that you actually need to have your uh, ballot notarized before you send it in. So, Matt, do you want to tell us about these, those states and the options we have here on campus? Yeah, absolutely. So, you need your ballot notarized if you're from Alaska, Alabama, Maine, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, or South Dakota. Again, that's just something that applies to a few states, um, but, but it's important because in order for you to get that done, we've what we have to do is we have to get that ballot notarized. Absolutely. And if you need your ballot to be notarized on campus, you can go to the Notre Dame uh, Federal Credit Union or the First Source Bank in the, in the Fund. Or if you're off campus, uh, you can go to the UPS store on South Bend Avenue. 
Uh, one thing, too, to note, uh, bef- when you're having your ballot notarized, if you need it to be notarized, um, you have to sign it in front of the notary. So do not sign it before you go to the notary. Okay. Uh, Matt, thank you for that discussion on voting and getting registered and requesting your absentee ballot. We're now going to send it to Patrick for our uh, election update. Welcome to the Endy Votes election update. My name is Patrick Amini, and I'll be providing you with a nonpartisan evaluation of the state of the presidential race, with a special focus on the rules and developments related to voting methods and vote counts. On this podcast, we'll be focusing on several important sets of swing states in this election, those in the South, the Midwest, and the Sun Belt. This podcast, we're looking at the Midwest. This was the site of a major polling error in 2016. While national polling leading up to the presidential election in 2016 was largely on target, polls did estimate a sizable lead for Hillary Clinton in the three key states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, all of which Donald Trump ended up winning by a very narrow margin to deliver him a victory in the Electoral College. Part of what makes the Midwest so significant is that these three key states are a major source of electoral votes, with 46 electoral votes between them as well as another 34 votes from the additional states considered competitive or on the verge of competitive. Now, Biden's polling leads in these, in these three critical states have ranged in recent weeks from 8.2% in Michigan to 7.1% in Pennsylvania, but that's a high watermark for him in recent weeks. It's critical for Trump's re-election prospects to win at least one of these states, and most analysts think that Pennsylvania is his best shot, but it remains to be seen. The broader range of competitive states in the Midwest includes Ohio and Iowa, two Trump states in 2016 for which polls are showing a tight race right now, as well as Minnesota, a state that Trump came close to flipping in 2016 and that he's tried to push for with rallies since then. Because of the surge in mail-in voting rates this year, as well as the partisan skew, Biden voters are more than twice as likely to vote by mail many polls are finding. A lot of attention has been paid to how mail-in voting will work in each of these states. And critical for us watching at home will be, when can we expect to see authoritative election returns? Well, Amber McReynolds, CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute, says, the three states that remain the most problematic from a mail ballot perspective are Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. In Michigan, the legislature rejected a proposal to start counting mail ballots early ahead of election day. They did pass legislation that would allow large cities to start processing ballots up to 10 hours before election day, but experts agree that that's a drop in the bucket when it comes to solving the larger problem. Wayne County, Michigan's most populous county and home of Detroit, is notorious for taking a while to release absentee ballot returns. And since Hillary Clinton led Donald Trump by almost 300,000 votes in this county in 2016, it's a good candidate to contribute to the phenomenon of a blue shift where election day results tend to favor Republicans more than the actual total, counting mail-in ballots. In Wisconsin, the legislative process to resolve problems with mail ballot counting has stalled due to a sharply divided state government. Controversies over mail voting in Wisconsin are therefore playing out in the courts, where a judge hasn't allowed counting to start ahead of time, but has permitted votes to count as long as they are postmarked by election day. The combination of these two factors may mean that we could still see results coming in for up to a week after the election in Wisconsin. Finally, in Pennsylvania, a bill is currently pending in the legislature to allow ballots to be processed up to 15 days ahead of time, but negotiations on that have stalled due to GOP demands to close absentee ballot drop boxes in exchange for their support for this legislation. 
A Pennsylvania court also ruled that all ballots must be placed in a secrecy envelope, an extra envelope included in the mail-in packet, or else they won't count. Election administrators are trying to get the word out as far as possible about these secrecy ballots, but we could see challenges to large numbers of votes after Election Day, which means if you're from Pennsylvania, make sure you use that extra envelope. That's all for this week's election update. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Um, coming up now, we want to talk about uh, how indie votes. You yes. know, there's a lot of discussion on campus about uh, what the what issues are important to us. But uh, we're gonna Adair. Do you want to touch base on this for us? Yeah. So I looked into um, I looked into how college students vote, and then a little bit more specifically how Notre Dame students vote. And I just want to preface this by saying once again that we are a nonpartisan group, and so we'll all agree that we want everyone to vote, no matter who they're casting a ballot for. More specific participation is just generally better. I think we can all agree on that. So all of this is just quantitative data. Um, I'm going to start with the NSOLVE data that we actually received from Nancy Thomas and the Tufts Institute for Democracy and Higher Education. So in previous elections, ND has actually voted at higher rates than the national average. So that would be 54% of Notre Dame students voted in the 2016 general election when compared to 50.6% of, um, of like all college students. Honestly, 54% is just not that impressive to me. But I mean, compared to the national average, we're doing pretty good. Um, and for like 73.2% were registered. So not all registered students cast a ballot in the 2016 election. Though over time in the 2018 election, registration actually increased. So registration increased to 79.6% of Notre Dame students. Only um, 37% actually went on to cast a ballot in the midterms. Though this was a sizable increase um, from the previous midterm elections, which were just 17.3%. So, I mean, it's expected that the midterm elections will have a lower turnout than a general election. So I think it's kind of cool to see that there was a 20% jump from 2014 to 2018, even though it was still only to 37%. So overall, Notre Dame, since in recent history, has increased registration um, and turnout, which and is ahead of the national average, which I think is pretty cool for us as a community um, and just shows that our participation is trending upward, which is cool to see. So it's kind of hard to get current data on how the climate at Notre Dame is. I think we can all sense that Notre Dame feels a little more 50-50 than you would expect a typical college campus to be. I mean, the stereotype is college kids, super liberal. Um, Notre Dame kind of feels more 50-50%. Um, so I found some data about college students in general from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation College Pulse Survey. Um, it also echoed the sentiment that college student turnout surged in 2018. And then they also said that 71% of college students say that they will cast a ballot and they will vote this year, which is just incredibly high and super encouraging. And then about 50%, this kind of goes back to what Matt was addressing with concerns of um, mail-in ballots. About 50% of students are worried about the legitimacy of the election. 
this isn't because of fraudulent votes being cast. This is more related to voter suppression and also related to like ballots getting lost in the mail, um, unclear information, um, especially because most college students do plan to vote by mail. So um, it is significant that 50% are worried about that going smoothly. Moving on from that, 70% say they will vote for Biden and 18% say they will vote for Trump. But what's most interesting is that of, so 70 say they will vote for Biden, but only 49% say they have a favorable impression of him versus 51% unfavorable. I'll note though that for President Trump, 19% have a favorable impression of him while 81% have an unfavorable impression. Wow. Yeah. So despite mostly unfavorable impressions of both candidates, we sh- we're seeing a, it looks like more students now than ever uh, plan on voting. Uh, yeah. So you were saying that this surge nationally coincided with the Notre Dame surge? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, there was a national surge in 2018 in terms of people becoming registered and turning out. And based on that surge nationally i think we've also seen that at notre dame in just participation levels so as within our own group our task force has tripled in size since 2018 and i mean we just started in 2016 but we've gone from for those not familiar with our um with our structure we have a dorm representatives and in the past we've had one representative for each dorm though now we have three which is great and just if you're making an assumption based on that participation on campus has tripled since the last election we've also um just our group has increased our collaborations on campus which shows that groups not traditionally interested in politics are really taking a stand i know people a lot of people are probably familiar with the demonstrations that athletes have been doing um, we've partnered with them to get as many people registered as possible. Also, we've been working with Coach McGraw to register people as well. Um, So the athletes who may not have traditionally been interested are increasing their involvement. Also, Student Gov, we've partnered with them. I know Matt's involved with that. So just showing how different special interest groups and groups not traditionally associated with politics are improving their particip- or increasing their participation shows this this surge is across all interests and yeah so yeah, that's really interesting and I, I think it, it speaks to both the uh, increased efforts of groups such as ourselves and other political groups on campus to try and raise awareness and uh, raise voter registration but also uh, with the fact that it coincided with a national surge it might show that a combination of these efforts are working. Uh, in addition to our, maybe just our generation, the college age generation right now, uh, becoming more aware, becoming more active, trying to take an active role uh, in helping choose the leaders of our society. Yeah, it's always been the case that um, when college kids don't vote, politicians don't really have to take their opinions into account. So the fact that college kids turned out so strongly in 2018 has really forced candidates to address the concerns of young people and take them more seriously when they're crafting their plans and crafting their platforms, which is, I think, a solid improvement on both sides of the equation. Yeah, That's a great point because 
uh, a lot of times, you, as you said, they, they tend not to take our opinion seriously because uh, we don't necessarily get out and vote in the numbers that we could. And I think one thing we all could agree on in, in our time working with Indie Votes, we've learned that a lot of students don't vote not because they're politically apathetic. There is no shortage of political opinions on our campus, but because of how cumbersome it is to vote absentee. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that you know we've created our guide and stepped up our campus efforts, even in the face of COVID, to try and uh, increase our registration and make it as accessible as possible. So I'll wrap up this uh, discussion with a little data about N- ND students and how ND students voted in 2016. So as I mentioned before, we all kind of assume, or we, there's just a climate on campus that feels more 50-50 than a traditional campus would. Um, maybe because we have strong college Republicans and college Democrats clubs um, and a lot of other groups on campus. But in a study from Jay Brandenberger um, out of the Center for Social Concerns called How Notre Dame Voted, based on the 2016 election, he found that 59% this is of grad students and undergrad students, so all students at Notre Dame. 59% voted for Hillary Clinton. 22.2% voted for Donald Trump. 18.3% voted for other. And what's interesting about this is that this looks just about on par with what the Knight Foundation data found for colleges on a whole. So um, really maybe Notre Dame, I mean, Notre Dame could have changed a lot from 2016, we just don't know, but based on this data, um, it was a lot more in line with the national average than I would have suspected. Yeah, that's actually a a very interesting point that we're more aligned with the national average of how college students vote in that, as you said, our campus does feel more 50-50. Do you think that it has to do with, uh, and this is probably an important point we want to touch on, the fact that our, we are a Catholic campus, we have a majority of our students are Catholic and uh, potentially, I'm not, I don't want to box them in, but potentially uh, make or break their vote on a single issue, such as the uh, issue of pro-life versus pro-choice? I would say it's hard to, I mean, it's difficult to speculate. I think that is a very important issue to a lot of students on this campus. And... Maybe this data shows that Notre Dame students aren't single issue voters and maybe I'm sure maybe some are, but pro maybe being pro-life doesn't determine your the entirety of your vote is what this data could suggest, though I don't want to draw like a final conclusion from it. That's fair. I think that's a great point to end this segment on. Uh, Notre Dame students are not, or at least according to the data, not single issue voters, but they're not afraid to uh, raise their opinions on uh, issues that are most important to them, at least on our campus, in creating that discussion. That's vital to uh, our campus life. Okay, so um, moving on to our next segment, we're going to touch on a little bit of the history of voting and uh, the history of suffrage, you know, obviously from the suffrage movement for uh, the women's empowerment and uh, the civil rights movement for uh, the right to vote for minorities as well. Um, There's a long history of uh, laws in our country that make it impossible for people to vote or make it, or today, make it harder for people to vote. Uh, so, Matt, do you want to start a discussion on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the, what I'm going to mainly focus on today is uh, the Shelby County v. Holder decision. 
Um, we, we might have heard, again, when we hear about these Supreme Court decisions, we might, you know, we might recognize the names, we might recognize the, the justices, but we might not know the substance. Um, and this Shelby County v. Holder decision is just, it's a very, very uh, important decision for how our politics and how our voting, uh, our ability to vote has, has moved forward over the past over the past few years. So this is a decision handed down in 2013. Um, so what this decision did is it struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act. And the Voting Rights Act was passed uh, after the Civil Rights Movement. And what its real goal was, again, is just to make it possible for people to vote. Because while uh, blacks were enfranchised um, after the Civil War, it, it made it very difficult. Uh, Jim Crow laws made, made it very difficult for them to vote. Uh, so the Voting Rights Act was put in place and it said... Um, if states want to pass new laws, if certain states um, wanted to pass new laws that, about voting, what they had to do was obtain preclearance. They had to get an okay from the federal government and say, yes, this is okay um, for you to do. So that is what preclearance is, and that is what was struck down by Shelby County v. Holder. So Shelby County v. Holder said preclearance was unconstitutional. So I just want to break down the arguments because, again, we hear, okay, preclearance is unconstitutional. Well, why? Why, why did this happen? So Chief Justice John Roberts uh, wrote, wrote the opinion for uh, the 5-4 block that, that said preclearance was unconstitutional. Um, and, and his main argument was, this has worked. Um, African Americans have attained political office in record numbers. And uh, also, they've been voting more, obviously, since, since the Voting Rights Act passed. So this has been a success, and now it's been a success, but it's a burden, it was, was his argument. It's a burden on states, and it's worked now, so we don't need it to be a burden anymore. Um, we, it's a very interesting point, because Justice Ginsburg, the, the late Justice Ginsburg, uh, who just passed away recently, um, in her dissent on this opinion, she said, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Um, so this, again, it raises the idea that the liberal side of the court said that, yeah, it's been working, and getting rid of it is going to undo all the good that it did. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts said, it's been working, so we should get rid of it. And uh, Justice Ginsburg said, it's been working, we have to keep it. Um, so that, that was her idea in the dissent. And largely what we've seen in the last seven years or so since this decision is unfortunately what Justice Ginsburg said has come to light. Um, we've, we've thrown away this umbrella and now we're getting wet. Um, and this is happening through a variety of ways. So again, what this decision did, uh, now the states that were formerly under these preclearance laws do not have to um, get approval by the federal government before they can make these changes. So we've seen uh, a, a swath of new voting legislation passed in these states that have made it harder for people to vote. Um, we see things like closing uh, voting places so there's only one per county or one per district. So uh, it's again, that means longer wait times for people that have to um, go and vote. And instead of having two or three different options, they all have to go to the same one. And we've and, seen... Oh, and just real quick to touch on that. Sorry to interrupt you. But that's a that's a very important thing to, to speak on. The, the longer wait times, you know, obviously you think, okay, for the sake of democracy, I'd go stand out there all day. And ideally we all would. Uh, but for a lot of people, especially those who need their vote to count the most, uh, that is not an option. You know, missing a day's work or trying to find a place for... Uh, or trying to find something somewhere to put have their kids so that they're not waiting in line with them all day. 
those little things really do add up and uh, prevent people from voting. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's totally true. Um, and, and the thing is, and maybe the longer wait times would be okay if something like Election Day being a national holiday was the case. Um, but, but we don't have that here. So these people, it's on a Tuesday. We're, we've, we go to vote on a Tuesday, and that's when people are working on Tuesdays. So they're either missing hours to go to vote or having to go during their lunch break and then getting back late or things like that. Um, or they just they can't make it because they, they don't feel they can miss a day of work. Um, and especially, again, that that it's harder on our more marginalized groups because again they they feel like they or they need to work more because they make less money so yeah closing voting places uh and longer wait times is definitely a big issue another one that has cropped up after this decision is uh a lot of voter id laws and you hear voter id laws and you say okay i have my driver's license i, I have my passport why why is this such a big deal um and for a lot of people or for a decent amount of people it's it's not and that's great but there are, is a is a, a group of people that they don't they've never traveled overseas or they've never traveled to another country so they don't need a passport they've never gotten one um, they don't drive they maybe live in a city so they take public transportation and they've never driven so they don't have a driver's license how do you prove this voter ID when it requires a driver's license or when it requires a passport or things like that when you don't have them uh, and what's essentially has done is has disenfranchised uh, voters that Otherwise, again, wouldn't have had an issue. They could either have um, shown a, like a water bill or things like that to be able to kind of have proof of residence. I'll just um, add to that that IDs are not free. You have to pay for an ID. It's not a lot, but that's essentially a poll tax. So another thing to consider with that, um, I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, yeah, that's, a, that, again, cost, uh, cost is a, to voting is, is another thing for sure. Um, yeah, when you go take... Or to get your ID, you absolutely have to pay for it and things like that. Um, and then just a couple other things I'll, I'll touch on. Uh, a lot of other countries have, we're, we're talking here about how you can go get registered. You can fill out this form or you can do it online or whatnot. A lot of other countries, if you once you turn a certain age, or you do they automatically register you uh, and you're automatically able to vote. So uh, in, in another way, that doesn't have anything to do with, with Shelby County v. Holder. But that's just a, uh, another way that we're kind of... Um, in some sense, lagging behind and just kind of we we're making citizens take the extra step instead of uh, our our government kind of lending a hand in that regard. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. We you know for as much as we want to pride ourselves on uh, the freedom that we we say we guarantee to all people and having our leaders be the leaders of the free world, uh, we are lagging behind in enabling people to have their voices heard. Yeah, and then so so my last point here is just uh, where where do we stand today? And and we'll talk about the coronavirus and restrictions there in, in just a minute. But what, what I want to say is that uh, it, there's been some work to maybe try to get a, a new voting rights act or bolster the voting rights act in Congress um, because the decision, the Roberts's decision, did say that um, Congress could pass new legislation. Uh, but it hasn't gotten done. I mean, guys, we we live in a partisan climate, and unfortunately, voting has become an issue that that is a partisan issue. So. Um, I, it's obviously a very important one, um, but what they're, uh, especially the Democrats are trying to get this new Voting Rights Act passed. It hasn't worked, um, and we'll see after the election, depending on the results, what, what happens there. But this is a very salient issue today, guys. Uh, it's, it's something that's very important. Uh, it's something we should, we should all think about. That, yeah, that's a, kind of a, it's an important, but it's also a crazy point that you bring up that, uh, unfortunately, today, voting has become a partisan issue. And... As a, as a group, Indy votes firmly 
states that we believe voting is not a partisan issue. It is a way for people of all beliefs and all backgrounds and all to make their voices heard. Yeah, and, and that's something that's honestly difficult for us because we're a nonpartisan organization and we and this is becoming a partisan issue and, and, and we don't want that. So we, we're striving to give you guys the facts and, you know, uh, make it as easy as possible for you guys to turn out and to be educated voters. But as you said, we're still seeing this playing out today and even recently uh, we've seen the closing of polling places and mail drop boxes. I know, Adair, we had touched on this before talking. Uh, so uh, did you want to speak to that? Well, yeah, I'm from Ohio, and you can turn in your ballot either by mailing it in or by dropping it in a drop box. And the Secretary of State decided that drop boxes could only be located at County Board of Elections offices. So that limits it to one drop box per county, um, no matter the size of the county. And people called for more drop boxes to be kind of scattered throughout to give people more options and more accessibility. Um, so the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of adding more drop boxes, which was a perceived win um, until the um, Secretary of State said, fine, you can have more drop boxes. They just all have to be at the County Board of Elections office. So there will, in fact, be multiple boxes in each county. They just may happen to be right next to each other. Jeez. Uh, yeah, and I'm from Texas, too, or I'm from Texas in uh, this issue is affecting us as well. Uh, just the other day, Governor Greg Abbott uh, proclaimed that they're going to limit the amount of drop-off locations for the mail-in ballots to one site per county. And this is especially significant for um, Harris County. You know, a lot of people identify, if you don't know that area, it's mainly, it's a, Houston's a big part of Harris County. Uh, reaches out to parts of Austin, I believe, too. Um, but it's a huge county. I think it has more people in it than pretty large significant areas. I don't want to say for sure, but I, I remember reading somewhere that it said a population comparable to four different states. Um, and just this one quote that I found when I was reading about it uh, really stuck with me and I wanted to, to share it with you all. Uh, Judge Lina Hidalgo, she is the top elected official in Harris County, uh, said on the record, uh, she just said, I want, I'm reminding our residents here in Harris County, our citizens, that we are not to be intimidated that this is a time to participate, and yes, it's going to be harder, and yes, they're trying to confuse and they're trying to suppress the vote, but for that very reason, we need to show everyone who's watching that we're going to participate because it's about democracy. So th through these issues, we can still see the resilience uh, of the people, but the fact that uh, we have to fight and be resilient in, in the face of our, our leadership uh, shows that there is this problem still playing out. And... Um, Speaking of, you know, going on about that, we still see gerrymandering uh, today. And speaking on the topic of Texas, uh, if you have a chance, look up the Texas 35th Congressional District. It crosses between the, like, the south, uh, southeast of San Antonio all the way up through Austin and the majority of Austin. And that, the distance between that is about an hour and a half drive. San Antonio is broken up, my home city is broken up in half, and there's a district that reaches from Austin to San Antonio. It is one of the uh, top 10 gerrymandered districts in the country. And the reason they do this is because they want to, the, when politicians are redrawing, when, when districts are re being redrawn, they want to be redrawn in a way that, okay, there's this block of voters here that may not potentially agree with me. So what if we redraw the districts in a way to where even if they all show up and they all vote, their vote is their voting block is broken up in such a way 
uh, that I can still win with every single one of them voting against me. And that, that, that doesn't work, obviously, because what is the point of you know, going out and making sure that our voices are heard if they construe it in a way to where our opinions and our voice does not matter to them and they're going to govern the way they want to govern and try and ensure that they stay in power as long as they can. And just to piggyback off that really briefly, um, that's another reason why I go out and vote this year. I mean, we, we had the census and we're, uh, maps are going to be up to be redistrict. Um, and ultimately, whichever party has control of your state um, is the one that's going to kind of get to, to handle that. So uh, uh, that might be an added impetus. And uh, just also, really briefly, that um, down-ballot races are important. Um, well, I know we, we say that here. You're not just voting for president. You're not just vote for... Um, you're voting for, like, your Indiana House representative seat for, for me or different things like that. So that's, again, just something to keep in mind. Um, state and local elections matter, too. Absolutely. Uh, and kind of going off that, speaking to the importance of the local elections... Uh, even if you, uh, and kind of tying that into the active day voter suppression, uh, even if you are a registered voter, thought you were, uh, there has been a lot of purging of voter rolls uh, in our country in the last couple of years. Adair, did you want to touch on, touch on that? Yes, this is also something very relevant to my, um, my home state, Ohio. So in 2018, the Secretary of State decided that voter rolls would... Um, you decided that your name would be purged from the voter roll if you'd skipped a federal election and then skipped um, numerous elections after that. They would send you um, a mail notice that you could respond to to, in order to not be like wiped from the voter roll. But I mean, that's I don't know a mail notice. Come on, I just think it it, it led to a lot of people being mistakenly um, purged like wiped from the voter roll essentially and then people showed up to vote in 2018 and realized that they weren't registered um so this like the claim was that this was to like help keep track of who had died or who had moved out of the who'd moved out of the state but really it just creates an unnecessary barrier to people who may have been disillusioned with candidates or were working as matt mentioned before just couldn't get to the polls though they were motivated at one point in time to finally show up and they couldn't exercise their civic duty so this has been a really big point of contention in my home state yeah that's an important point that you made too at a lot of times that when they do these uh purging they they emphasize it in a way to where you think okay it's not going to apply to me but in the fine print it might actually apply to you Uh, i know here in indiana uh, in our time here, well, as students at Notre Dame, uh, there was a purging of the voter rolls, and I believe they made it seem like, okay, if you haven't voted in the last three general elections, you were going to be purged. Uh, but the fine print meant when they said, that if you haven't voted in the last three elections, it was you know the, the local elections that Matt spoke of that typically don't see the same major turnout as uh, general elections do. So it's just paying attention to those kind of things and the way they try to deceive and uh, the uh, all kind of comes to culminates in the active day voter suppression. So they're not theoretically breaking any laws, but they are very much so harming democracy. Yeah, there was almost a 20% difference in the turnout among Notre Dame students between just even a midterm and general election, not to mention like a local city election. So, or just like within state election. So 
yeah, you could be purged for elections that have, yeah, characteristically less turnout than the major ones we always think of. Okay. I think that's a good place to end uh, on that segment, just uh, you know, wrapping it up saying, you know, these voter suppression is still very much alive today, uh, and we need to pay attention to the ways in which it happens so that we can we can fight that and try and stop it as best we can because uh, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you are, you may be on, I think we can all agree on the fact that um, if all of us are not allowed to uh, make our voices heard equally, then our democracy cannot stand. Uh, so moving on to our next segment, we wanted to speak a little bit to uh, the issues that are on the ballot in this coming election and the issues that voters find um, most important. So I was looking into this and I saw... Uh, this article on Pew Research, uh, it was written August of this year, so obviously the Supreme Court uh, coming into higher contention lately, it may not be factored into this uh, this research, but um, on the issues that they found that voters find most important to them, economy, the economy came out as the top issue for voters in 2020 at 79% saying it's important, followed by health care, oh, and then the Supreme Court. Uh, and then fourth, actually, the coronavirus outbreak at 62%. Uh, some notable ones down the list, gun policy, only 55% say it's important to them, and race and ethnic inequality, only 52% uh, saying it's very important to them. Uh, some of the other issues, obviously, uh, the Affordable Care Act or health care is a topic that has been in high contention uh, as of late. Uh, did either of you guys want to touch on that? Uh, I mean, yeah, we we heard it very recently in the uh, in the last the vice presidential debate um, that it's it's a very salient issue between the two parties, and uh, I mean, Democrats are very strongly for keeping it. Republicans are very strongly uh, for a, a repeal and replace. Um, it's somewhat, and we also saw it battled out in the Democratic primary um, whether the ACA is enough. Um, and with with people uh, farther left like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren saying we we need more than this, um, but then also on the Republican side uh, saying we we need much less. So it's it's a very wide wide range of of ideas on that spectrum right now. It's also interesting how a lot of these um, important issues to voters kind of inter- overlap, especially because the Affordable Care Act is on the docket for the Supreme Court this session. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's expected to be overturned by this particular case, but it's just constantly being challenged. So the Supreme, who is nominated to the Supreme Court will have a large effect on what happens with health care and what happens with a lot of these other issues, which is something to keep in mind. Yeah, and, and something that we've seen too, I'll say, um, is that we've always, or the common common wisdom has always been that Republicans care more about Supreme Court justices and justices. Um, and what we might be seeing after the pass of, of uh, Justice, the passing of Justice Ginsburg, is that that gap uh, might not be so wide anymore uh, as as people on the left uh, look to uh, realize that they they uh, that the Supreme Court is important and that uh, judicial nominations are important as well. So it's absolutely overlaps um, with things like the ACA, with things uh, like Roe v. Wade. I know we didn't mention that, but um, just very everything overlaps with the Supreme Court pretty much because the the Supreme Court can be can hear uh, a wide variety of cases. And now more so than ever, it's important to uh, pay attention to these major issues such as health care and the Supreme Court in an election year, uh, especially right now because we're going through a pandemic. So the fact that health care 
and potentially uh, lessening it for millions of people is even in the discussion is something uh, that is both surprising and kind of crazy, something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, and obviously the future of the laws and the decisions that will be made in our country with the Supreme Court and the way it affects everything that's going on in our country right now. You know, the, the next administration and the uh, Supreme Court appointee, whoever gets uh, uh, nominated and approved by the Senate, uh, we're going to see what happens with the, the civil unrest that we've seen in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and more equality for people uh, of all races. And uh, we're going to see what happens with the police reform and the police and immigrants' rights and so many other major issues. Uh, so make sure, you know, as you're, as you're getting out and voting, as we've so like highly encouraged and do highly encourage you to do, uh, that you're informing yourself on these issues and knowing what's important to you. This way, when you do make your voice heard, uh, you can ensure as best as you can that it's your actual opinions that are that you are uh, making heard, voicing. Um, and you mentioned police reform. That starts in your city. So just going back to how important the whole ballot is, don't just check the presidential box and send it back. Look at who's running for office in your city because that's where things like police reform and your local economy, that's where issues like that will be settled in that part of the ballot. I think that's a great way to wrap up our uh, penultimate segment. Uh, as we end here, I just want to throw in my own little soliloquy about something that I find that I'm very passionate about uh, on the topic of uh, why every vote matters. So one of my biggest pet peeves is hearing people say, my vote doesn't matter. Uh, I'm from this state, so it, I, it doesn't matter how I vote or government doesn't affect me no matter which party is in power. My life stays the same. And we have to understand that uh, being able to make those kind of statements is a privilege. Uh, be, to be able to live that kind of life is a privilege. Voting is a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to say these things. And voting is not a right that has always been given to everybody. Women and minority groups have had to fight for this right. They've even had to shed blood and die for this right. And even today, people are disenfranchised by certain laws and practices that are designed to keep those who need government the most from voting. Those who need government the most are the very people that interest groups spend millions and millions every year to keep from voting. And you can't tell me that your vote doesn't matter when people are willing to spend millions to keep you from casting it. And they, why do they do this? They do this because they know that when we all vote, we can and we will create the change that we want to see for our society and for our world. Your vote matters because local election matters. Your vote in November is for more, far more than just the presidency. You can help determine the lawmakers in Congress, the leaders of your states, the mayor of your city, the sheriff and judges in your counties, and the members of the local school board who determine what and how the youth of America is taught. Your vote matters because it, because it is so much bigger than just you. Your vote matters because it can help, up, it can help lift up the lowest amongst us. Your vote can help make sure that nobody goes hungry, Nobody is without care, and nobody sleeps on the street at night. As human beings, we are called to care for one another because we are all deserving of dignity simply because of the humanity that we have been given. So vote. Vote because your vote can help fulfill this call. Vote because your vote can change the world. Indie Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, uh, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Indie Student Media for their support and production of this podcast. We would also like to thank, uh, I would also like to thank my co-host for being here today. Uh, thank you, Matt and Adair. I think this has been an incredible 
uh, first episode. And as always, Indie Votes reminds you to register to vote and request your absentee ballot as soon as possible using the link on our website and or in our Instagram bio. Also, check out other voter education resources on our website. Your vote matters. Get political. Thank you.